0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 57.
1: bottom line. First at the coast, highest surge is happening right now. This is a huge surf. Many roads and highways underwater. Inland, there's going to be hurricane force winds well inland. It's going to follow the Interstate 59 corridor, it looks like. There's been structural damage already reported in New Orleans and several other cities along the coast. Massive power outages, too, and local flooding. A major concern, levee break already noted in New Orleans. Now, earlier this morning, we've been talking with Jim Cantore. He's in Gulfport, Mississippi. His producer, Simon Temperton, is there as well with him. We're going to talk to Simon now by phone. And Simon, it sounds like you guys are getting hit pretty hard where you're located.
0: Yeah, but that's an understatement. We're going through some uh, unbelievable conditions right now. We're actually in the uh, Armed Forces Retirement Home here in Gulfport, and we're standing inside, and water has uh, been seeping into the building. I'd say we had like a 20-foot uh, lease. That much storm surge outside, it's washed all our vehicles away, our rental cars and everything else. Now water is seeping the old into old the home area and they've evacuated everybody all day, to the second
1: floor. And the warnings could hardly have been more stark. We are facing a storm uh, that most of us have feared. I do not want to create panic. But I do want the citizens to understand that this is very serious. The fact that we went from 175 miles per hour down to 165, uh, that's a difference being run over by an 18 wheeler or by a freight train, and uh, neither prospect is good. The city flooded not just with storm
0: water, but with sewage and chemical residue from the plants that surround it. But tonight, keeping people alive through Katrina is the first priority. Nearly 12,000 New Orleans residents have already taken refuge in the giant Superdome, that number will grow. It's going to be very unpleasant. We're not in here to feed people. We're in here to see that when... A few days after Katrina just destroyed New Orleans, the whole city is underwater, the mayor, Ray Nagin, calls into a local radio station, WWL, and expresses his immense frustration at the fact that there doesn't seem to be anyone coming to help. The federal government isn't helping. They're not sending the supplies and the transportation. They're not helping to evacuate. It felt, like, it felt like the entire nation has just decided to ignore the fact that this huge natural disaster has obliterated a city, and he just couldn't take it anymore.
1: What do you need right now... To get control of this situation, I need reinforcements. I need troops, man. I need five hundred buses, man. We're talking about, you know, one of the briefings we had. They were talking about getting, uh, uh, you know, public school bus drivers to come down here and bus people out here. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is a national disaster. Get every doggone Greyhound bus line in the country and get their asses moving to New Orleans.
0: Hurricane Katrina destroyed 230,000 homes in Mississippi. 230,000. It's such a big number. It's difficult to wrap your mind around it. Look at it like this. If you visited each home that was destroyed in Mississippi just for 15 minutes and then teleported to the next one, some sort of teleportation magic got you there one second after you were finished looking at this one and then you went to the next one. With no breaks of any kind for 24 hours a day, it would take you more than six years to visit the mall at that rate. 15 minutes each, no breaks. If every house was represented by a seat in Yankee Stadium, that would be five stadiums worth of seats. In Mississippi, 238 people died, while in New Orleans, Katrina killed 986. Mississippi's coast was erased from the map, but 80% of New Orleans was flooded when the levees broke. 130,000 homes. According to datacenterresearch.org, half of the people who died in New Orleans were over the age of 74.
1: You know the reason why the looters got out of control? Because we had most of our resources saving people. Thousands of... that was stuck in attics, man, old ladies. When you pull off the doggone ventilator vent and you look down there and they're standing in there in water up to their frickin' neck, and they don't have a clue what's going on down there. They flew down here one time, two days after the doggone event was over, with TV cameras, AP reporters, all kind of goddamn, excuse my French, everybody in America, but I am pissed.
0: It's really hard to explain what it felt like after Hurricane Katrina. If you were there, not, not the actual events, that's all very vivid. But that feeling that you thought you were part of modern civilization and you, you were abandoned, that you were going to have to figure it out for yourself. And hopefully you have a chainsaw or somebody else has a chainsaw, a generator or something. You got to figure it out for yourself. It was a really strange feeling considering how much time we all had to get ready for this thing, to know that it was going to be horrible.
1: I don't know whose problem it is. I don't know whether it's the governor's problem. I don't know whether it's the president's problem. But somebody needs to get their ass on a plane and sit down, the two of them, and figure this out right now. This is ridiculous. I I don't want to see anybody do any more goddamn press conferences. Put a moratorium on press conferences. Don't Don't do another press conference until the resources are in this city and then come down to this city and stand with us when there are military trucks and troops that we can't even count. Don't tell me 40,000 people are coming here. They're not here. It's too doggone late. Now get off your asses and let's do something. And let's fix the biggest goddamn crisis in the history of this country. And I'll say it right now. You're the only politician that's called and called for arms like this. And if whatever
0: it takes, the that's governor. That's WWL president, host Garland
1: Robinette. It takes, whatever it takes, I bet that the people listening to you are on your side. Well, I hope so, Garland. I am just... I'm at the point now where it don't matter. People are dying. They don't have homes. They don't have jobs. The city of New Orleans will never be the same.
0: For the people who lived through the storm 10 years ago, a psychological phenomenon known as post-traumatic stress disorder set in right away, and it has manifested in a million different ways ever since, affecting life at all levels, even until this very moment. And with the 10-year anniversary coming up, it's it's really stinging again. And I know because I lived through Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. I was there when it hit. I was there in New Orleans and on the Mississippi Gulf Coast after reporting on all of this for newspapers in the area and helping my relatives across the region salvage and rebuild. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are exploring PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And later in the show, I'm asking you to indulge me just a bit as I tell a few stories from my experiences during that time. After this break, we'll sit down with Robert D. Laird, a psychologist at the University of New Orleans who spoke with me in his office just this week, a few days before Katrina's 10th anniversary. All about the nature of PTSD, how it affects people after a natural disaster and other incidences, and how people can best deal with the disorder in both their own lives and the lives of others, the lives of people they love. More on all that after this break. Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who have written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront right now manages more than $2 billion in client assets and they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for their clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all of your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. All right, here's your disclaimer. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC registered investment advisor. Broker services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation. Member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now, back to our show. The eye of Katrina passed right over me, my wife, and my family as we hunkered down to my wife's grandmother's house 10 years ago. We lived about an hour away from the Gulf Coast at the time and an hour and a half from New Orleans. And my memory of all this might be faulty, I don't know, but in playback, I see us walking outside during that brief window of calm and seeing all of the neighbors walking out at the same time onto their lawns, into the road, and we just didn't say anything. We just looked at the trees through the houses and the weird bits of debris from places far away and this gray sky from horizon to horizon that was somehow bright and backlit, like a theater screen that was showing a single color. And you know how in movies, the alien invasion will come in with all the ships and fill the skies and there's this shot where everybody kind of takes these half steps as they move forward in a big group and they stare overhead. It was like that. Everyone was looking up into the sky at the storm, seeing nothing but gray. And then when the wind picked up, everybody went back inside. And I have tons of stories I could talk about. And I I will tell my like long version of the story at the end of the, uh, at the end of the show after the interview. But the thing is, this, every time this time of year comes around, we all begin trading our Katrina stories, all of us. And this being the 10th anniversary, I think that, you know, there's more pressure to really try to think about it. And most of the time you talk about the aftermath and the weirdness of the gas lines and the new no electricity and all the weird stuff that happened. But at the nucleus of everyone's tale, right in that gooey center of the cherry cordial, that is your Katrina story is this part where you talk about riding out the storm and wondering if you were going to die. Everyone has a version of it. And according to the research, that is the crucial element for real PTSD to arise in an individual. In the book Disasters, A Psychological Perspective, Margaret Gibbs and Kim Montagnino, they write that PTSD is usually the result of extended periods of stress within the frame of total vulnerability and a lack of control. So the fewer resources at your disposal, the fewer options, the more unable you are to escape, the bigger the thing causing the stress, the more mountainous it is, the more all-encompassing, the more likely it becomes that you will suffer strong PTSD afterward. Unexpected, uncontrollable events that put a person in fear for his or her life for long stretches of time seem to be the perfect recipe for coming away with a long-lasting mental disorder. But here's the self-delusion angle of this. Here's that part that is most relevant to the you-are-not-so-smart perspective. Many, if not most, people who experience PTSD don't realize that they have this disorder. Now, we've talked about why this is on the show before. We often have no idea where our thoughts come from, where our feelings come from, and we just don't have access to the antecedents of our emotional states. But... We usually believe that we do. Unless you're told that you don't have that, you assume that you do have that. And it means that we tend to misattribute the way we feel to the things that we can easily identify. And then we just move on. And most of the time, this is not a problem. For instance, when people watch a crappy movie with lots of CGI, they will often blame the crappiness of the movie on its overuse of special effects. But the actual problem of the movie is usually poor acting or poor storytelling or poor characterization or something like that. Since those things are invisible and requires sort of a a deeper understanding of, of filmmaking, they're not salient. And so people tend to blame their icky emotions and their bad feelings about a movie on what is salient, and that's usually all that CGI insanity, especially if the movie, like, hinges on it. In patients who have split brains so that the right and left hemispheres can't communicate, when those people are shown horrible images of car crash victims in the eye that cannot interact with the portion of the brain that produces speech... They will often explain their upset stomach being the result of something that they ate because the part of the brain that's speaking didn't actually see the bad image. If they're shown a funny cartoon, they will say they are laughing because of some joke that they can, they remember or that the situation itself is silly to them or something. In the famous uh, Capilano Canyon bridge study, experimenters uh, had a woman approach men on a big suspension bridge and this young woman asked them to fill out a questionnaire and then, she gave them a number to call if they had follow-up questions. A significantly greater number of men later called that number asking for a date than did men approached in the exact same way on a sturdy, safe, tiny wooden bridge. So they misattributed their heightened emotional state as being produced by their interaction with the woman. And I could go on and on and on and on with all this because it's it's a very... <laughs> It's a huge, crazy thing that we do. But the bottom line is that we tend to explain our feelings as best we can, given the information available. But we rarely, if ever, say that we simply don't know why we feel the way we feel. And for people with PTSD, more than a third experience intense depression and about a quarter experience intense anxiety. And it can be especially frustrating because those people will often try and pinpoint the source of those feelings in their lives with difficulty not realizing it was the traumatic event weeks, months, or years ago triggering those feelings. Also, a significant number of people suffering from PTSD will visit doctors complaining of health problems that don't really exist because, as they say in psychology, they are somaticizing their stress. They are explaining these bodily states, these feelings they're having, the stress, this anxiety, this depression, and they're imagining that that stress is actually something wrong with their physical body and not their brain delivering those feelings and those feelings manifesting in some physical way. So they explain it away in some form that seems plausible because they just don't know that it's actually coming from the PTSD. This was a big problem after Katrina and it still is for many people. About 8% of Americans suffer from PTSD. But a study by Lisa D. Mills and her colleagues published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine detailed how one year after Katrina, 38% of the emergency room patients who had lived through the disaster and later visited that hospital where the study was performed, they suffered from PTSD brought on by the hurricane. So that's 38% of people in this really big sample of people living in New Orleans. Another study showed that 19% of New Orleans firefighters and 22% of New Orleans police officers showed signs of PTSD one year after Katrina. So this hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, 10 years ago, brought with it, with all the other things that it did, PTSD to an entire city. 38% of roundabouts of the people living there who lived through that event also are experiencing all the strange things that come along with PTSD. And I wanted to talk... To someone who lives there, a psychologist who works in the city, to get that person's take on all of this. And to learn more about it, I visited Robert D. Laird, a psychologist at the University of New Orleans who experienced Katrina firsthand and its aftermath and has been working there all this time. And he's watched the city rebuild over the last 10 years. So, with all of that in mind, let's pick. I think a, a lot of people have heard the term, and I think a lot of people, maybe even familiar with that old George Carlin bit where he talks about it was shell shock, and then it was you know such and such, and then it eventually becomes this. It seems like a, a more elaborate and more difficult to put your get your mind around idea. When, what is you know, what is PTSD to just like to a, a lay person who thinks they
2: might know what it is? What is it really? Well, I, I think it's 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 an a very strong anxiety reaction. Um, that that then becomes linked to a particular traumatic experience so I think the, the commonality when you look at like something like Hurricane Katrina and and the older terms of you know shell shock and things like that is that, that you're fearful for your life when I mean, you, your life is really threatened and our, our bodies have ways of dealing with stress and anxiety you know producing anxiety and other kinds of reactions basically to help us survive um, but then I think we can think of PTSD as kind of a remnant of using that system that we're really not supposed to need to use, too often, at least.
0: Maybe, maybe there was a, we could speculate there was a. an earlier time in our history as a species where we would be in peril more often, maybe
2: as there's like a system that- Well, you know, it's, it's I think what, one way to think about it is: is we have this this fight or flight kind of system, and um, sometimes neither of those options can we do. And so, you know, the, one of the things that we know about PTSD symptoms and experiences is is that people who are who are able to actively do something to to, to cope with the the storm in this case or, or the environment that they're in. Um, they tend to have fewer symptoms than people mm-hmm. that are just kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're you're stuck in your house with a hurricane coming through, you, you can't go fight it. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't fight, you can't leave at that point, you're you're kind of stuck. so you, your your body's preparing itself for completely for one of those two options, and yet your only real option is to sit and wait. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and that seems to be part of part of the, the difficulty. Is um, it is uh, probably something that that is uh, served us well um, in the history of of mankind mm-hmm. um, when fighting or flighting work. You know, right. yeah. there are many and there are many times where where that same uh, response is effective because one of those options are is available. Mm-hmm.
0: It's so weird, though, um, these, the lasting effect from this one moment can seem to persist for years and years. I mean, sometimes that moment is minutes long, and you, your body and you, you know, your, your, um, your brain and your body are, seem to react to what happened to you for a few minutes for years and years. I mean, what, is, what are some of the symptoms that people
2: who are experiencing PTSD usually? uh... Well, there tend to be three groups of symptoms. Okay. One one group of symptoms is kind of reliving the experience in some some way, so it could be flashbacks, dreams, or or just thinking about it a lot. Um, Another group of symptoms are um, avoidance of anything that would remind you of the situation or, or a numbness, Either, either of those kinds of things. And the other one is, is called hyperarousal and it's just an, an overreaction basically to um, you know, the stimuli around you. So some, it might be a, a car door or, or um, uh, hearing uh, lightning strike mm-hmm. or thunder, th- hearing thunder, I guess. Um, and then, you know, your heart racing and, and kind of beyond what would be of an expected reaction to those kinds of experiences.
0: But why does why does it hang on for so long? I mean, it seems like um, other intense experiences don't seem to have those echoes as such, as, as something that's that where you feel like you have had your life in danger. Or what is it, what is it, what's? It seems like there should be a purpose to that, or is there some sort of there's a functionality to it. You would assume. What, was, what, do, you, what do you think? Is yeah. I,
2: well, I, I think if we if we go to like basic learning theory, um, what we've got is is you've got a minimal exposure, just one time, um, but it gets linked really, really strongly to that experience. And I mean, think kind of decompose it a bit. Um, you, know, you you may you know, smell your 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 grandmother's. You know, best recipe and so you're, you're, you your know, that that olfactory cue will then start you know all of these other connections in your brain you'll start producing saliva and all of these kinds of things and I mean granted, you probably had that that meal many times mm-hmm. um, and this is just one thing but it part of it, that whole system of of that whole memory bank so to speak is all linked and then it's all reinforcing itself drawing out those, um, physiological responses that are that are paired with it um, <clears throat> my dad was in um,
0: Vietnam and uh, he talked about it pretty candidly my whole childhood never seemed to have any sort of like flashbacks PTSD any other kind of stuff that you think that you sometimes think about with veterans who've seen combat but I remember uh, he did ele- electrical work and I was um, like, like 11 12 years old we drove out to alabama uh, to this job site it was in the middle of nowhere and he there was no one else around but us and i remember he was working on a control panel just kind of came up out of the ground in the middle of like a, a big field type area and um there was they were doing mining uh a few miles out and every once in a while they'd set off a, a charge and it would just be woof, and it would it would slowly that shock wave would come across us it was and he, and every time he, he was, I remember so clearly he was uh, turning a screwdriver and he would just stop. The screwdriver twisting would stop for a second. And I'd see the muscles in his forearm just tense. And then he'd go back to doing the work and then, woof, he'd stop. And after two or three of those, he just said, man, we, we need to go. I can't, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to be here anymore. And... We got in the car and drove home. I didn't, I didn't ask. I waited a while to ask. And then I said, you know, what's going on? And I remember him telling me as a little kid, it was like, just sounded too much. It felt too much like mortars in the distance. And so they were, you know, they were shelled every night by mortar fire at his base. And this is something he had not thought about or felt for 20 years.
2: Well, and we, you know, there's, there's a big difference between people that experience. PTSD symptoms and people that experience enough of the symptoms to be diagnosed with the disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what you described about your dad is that that would that would fit a symptom. I mean, it, it's a, a reloving and, and an avoidance combined. Mm-hmm. But it's not to the degree that it's it's really disrupting his life in any any kind of functional way, except for you know, that one afternoon and mm-hmm. you know, probably. Probably wasn't too often when he was working in that combination right. of, of, of circumstances. Um, so I think there there are probably lots of people around that that um, might be a particular block that they avoid driving by, mm-hmm. or it could be different colors or scents. Or you know, I, um, I I can only imagine you know what would happen if lots of people in New Orleans were exposed to you know. Rotten refrigerators and all of those kinds of things mm-hmm. that aren't part of our normal daily uh, life anymore, but but are probably closely linked in mm-hmm. people's brains to those kinds of circumstances. I know just from
0: where we lived, we didn't ex- we experienced a lot of um, a lot of inconvenience, and we had to saw a lot of trees down, and help people, and no electricity. We experienced you know the aftermath of a hurricane. But we didn't experience the horrifying aftermath like a lot of new orleans did but uh you know when we when it's hurricane season just the word hurricane season will start to, to make me feel uneasy and um like the last hurricane in the gulf the last hurricane that looked like it was coming in the gulf i mean we i was like i went from not thinking about it not talking about it to putting it on my facebook page and telling people and copying and pasting the Reports and everyone else commenting on it, and we all, everyone who experienced it, we just immediately get so focused. Whereas before, every hurricane that came through, I barely paid any attention. But now, the second it appears midways between here and Africa, I'm, I set up updates and I start thinking about it every day. It's it's it's, yeah, it's a really strange thing to to that, that I think will never ever leave me. You know what I mean?
2: Well, that I, I think there's there's a legitimate. Reason now to pay attention to those things. I mean, you you know what, you you know, that leaving might be a really good oh, idea. Right, yeah. <laughs> Where
0: before you <laughs> totally. didn't
2: necessarily know that. I will never.
0: I right. will never stick around ever again. No.
2: So so it becomes challenging to separate you know hyper as a a problem mm-hmm. from just being smart. Mm-hmm. and paying attention, and and I think part of it has to do with um, maybe the reaction that you have mm-hmm. to to it. I'm mean, knowing that you know this is out there. We need to keep an eye on it, um, versus you know, the obsessiveness. I, w- I was at a party um, last Friday night and Saturday night, and, and something something like, right. Katrina next weekend. Them, oh, there's a storm out in the Gulf. And they pull out their phone and they're, they're looking right. at the storm. that's way out. I mean, it's right. barely off the coast of Africa. And it was funny just, just looking at the the handful of people that were around. There, were, you know, some people that you know looked, and other people just walked away. That uh-huh. you know, there there doesn't seem to be a lot of a lot of middle ground people. Where, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's out there. You know, know that yeah. it's either avoiding completely or, or um, kind of obsessing.
0: Well, let's talk about like real like. These feelings may be shades of PTSD, but like there are people who live in New Orleans who are who are deeply affected, and there's been there has been studied in a number of different directions. What is what are some of the lingering effects uh, of Katrina and been? And what are some of the ways that PTSD have affected people in this area
2: of the community? Well, I think that that you that, that those. Those, those groups of symptoms kind of tell you what what kinds of long term effects there are. So, there, there, there are um, probably at this point relatively small numbers of people who were who still experiencing um, debilitating symptoms. What those, what like? um, and what would that look like? And that's, I think that was, that's the, uh, it's, Kind of the caricature of the the Vietnam veteran who mm-hmm. who, who hears the helicopter and and mm-hmm. goes into a panic, mm-hmm. um, but again it would be that so you, you know, it's hurricane season and, and, and you know from June to, to October November every year you're 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 constantly watching the news and hyper vigilant about about that. Um, Stress hormones. To the point that yeah, oh, yeah you you can't you can't leave your house. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean Stalking, the, the physiological re- response—you're you're, you're, con- you're constantly uh, are producing those stress hormones, and your body's constantly at that, that level of alertness. Um, but avoiding you know, different parts of town or different kinds of uh, settings—you mm-hmm. um, were avoiding the news for six months out of the year, um, and then you know they probably the the, the the lingering my guess is that the lingering symptom is is that um, just kind of the, the the responsiveness to the word hurricane or mm. mentions of uh, not necessarily katrina but you know there's a hurricane out in the Gulf, and bad, probably bad weather in general like like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah i know there were i was I was talking to, to um, somebody the other day, and we, you know, we had a thunderstorm roll through, and in, in the middle of the night, and um, kind of mentioned that you know, they woke up, and, and for the first few seconds, they thought they were mm-hmm. in bed the night of Katrina. Um, I took a second to realize so it's been a long time, and I know. that's not where I am, but
0: you know we lived through uh, a tornado uh it's been two years now and it was way worse than katrina for us because it was a went right over our house and mm-hmm. destroyed our house and we were in it and it was um it was really bad and um i, st- I have dreams about tornadoes all the time like just weird you know it pretty much put it, i get myself into all sorts of weird situations and then and, the, and they you know i wake up and i'm scared and i have i mean i have tornado dreams um I can I don't like those uh, YouTube videos of people who actually see a tornado. Like it. it um, I think they still. It's still fascinating, but like it went from being fascinating in a sort of a spectacle kind of way to now, tornadoes feel more like mountains or like the Grand Canyon or something. Like they really feel so much bigger than me. Like mm-hmm. uh, I feel completely. There's no like man versus nature feelings anymore. I feel completely uh, microscopic. <laughs> I feel like an insect in comparison to its power, and that feeling can be evoked by any image of a tornado. Uh, whereas before, you know, I can I can remember beforehand. It was just you know whatever.
2: Um, so some of that helpless helplessness. Complete. I, I don't
0: like. I don't feel. I don't feel like I could outwit, outsmart, outrace, outrun, no, I just feel, yeah, I feel completely mm-hmm. at its uh, at the mercy of that force.
2: But I think one of the things about, about Katrina is that, so, so you're, with with your example of the hurricane, it, it's it's linked to the, the hurricane itself, and so and with Katrina you have people who, who live through the night of the storm with the wind and, you know, all of... All the elements of a hurricane,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, but then you had people who are reacting to the experience of being in a house a couple right. of days later yeah. with the water rising. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people who are reacting to the panic of not having food and water to feed their children, mm-hmm. um, and you know. And some of those people, it's you know, it's boom, 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 boom. You know, every day they were they were kind of traumatized in a new way. So I think one of the, the challenges um, with that uh, particular experience is just to thinking about the heterogeneity of traumatic experiences that people had. Mm-hmm. It's not merely the sounds of the storm. It could it, it could be water, um, I mean, water pouring. You know, we have floods around here every time it right. rains to a degree. Um, so you know, just a, a rainy afternoon, I'm, Middle of the summer, we had a, rain, a flood in the parking lot across the street, and those are well, some people. That's that's what their right. the real real fear is. I can imagine there'd be so many triggers: the power goes
0: out, the, your air conditioner goes out, <laughs> um, gas lines, uh, flooding, um, definitely weather, um, even like. I know I participated in a lot of the cleanup on the Gulf Coast, and so um, hum- Humvees and uh, rubble mm-hmm. and um, uh, water lines—like all of that stuff, like any single one of those elements will put me back into that time period.
2: Helicopters flying, over right? Yeah.
0: The um, but a person who's who knows that they have certain triggers and they and they can be very strongly affect them. What are some of the ways that they? Um, can improve their quality of life.
2: It seems like that that the, the some of the most effective strategies are are kind of exposure therapies, where um, you know, in, in scientific terms, basically you you habituate to the trigger. You're exposed to the trigger over and over again mm-hmm. until it doesn't. Create the, the trauma. The challenge um, for people and working through that is that the the response person's response can be so strong to those triggers initially that it eliminates any any kind of benefit. So um, being able to, to 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 process that with with some with some help um, from somebody who can kind of gradually ramp them up. Up toward those experiences mm-hmm. seems to be to be good um, taking active steps um, you know having social support around yeah. um, you know, being prepared and so um, knowing that if, if the if your, if your trigger is kind of discussion of, of hurricanes on the news for example then Having a plan to evacuate and knowing that that you can do something about it this mm-hmm. time um, might help. Mm-hmm. The um,
0: this is the exposure therapy. It seems to me is like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's sort of like you know a lot of things, a lot of our learning. You know, it's, it's almost an if-then statement that's written into our like behavioral code. You know, if these cues are in, in the environment, then this is likely to happen, and so therefore prepare body for action and you know this is right. this comes this horrible loop right and the exposure thing when it works is like saying it's like adding another line another if then line. if then yes but if this <laughs> then this because you the brain is it seems like it's difficult you can't just erase a you know a learned pattern you have to learn another thing on top of it
2: right yeah you di- dilute it mm-hmm. um, so, so and you might have a high High reactive concentration right now, but experiencing it over and over again and and then and maybe it's only twenty you know, percent of the time that that you're going to get that so, high. so
0: i mean if you' if you're having if you're a person who's experienced combat and you know you have this it must be very difficult to um, get that kind of therapy how, how does how does that usually how does a person like that usually treated for like, you know um you know cues from the environment in the normal non wartime world are making them feel this way how do they how are they exposed in a therapeutic way to to how 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 are those things relearned when you, you know you can't put that person back right. in the middle of combat well I, I,
2: and 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 the, that's really the advantage they have too so you don't you don't have to go back into that that same situation uh-huh. um, but it's really what the becomes problematic when elements of that situation elements that 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 were part of that situation are then experienced in everyday life Mm -hmm. and so in your dad's case it was it was a an explosion so Uh again you know luckily we don't um experience too many of those but it could just be a loud noise or darkness um and so there there's usually the trick is to find what what the trigger is for that person, and then kind of exposure to that trigger, and it doesn't have to be the the complex, mm-hmm. um, you know, war, war time scenario. Um, but the challenge is that you know, there can be complex triggers, and a lot of times um, our strongest reactions are to smells, um, and great. so those can be some of the the strangest things to try to to reproduce. Mm-hmm. People. Come like, into to my uh, office and smell my rotten refrigerator. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there are a lot of smell after Katrina, that's for sure. Uh, I know that there was a very specific sea smell because, like, like a lot of my, my family lived on the Gulf Coast, and they, you know, the the smell that was that was left over you the sand mm-hmm. and the dead, you know, sea stuff and the water on the walls. And there's like a mold smell. All that stuff mixed together. That is that's that is what Katrina is to me is that smell more than anything else, and everything else builds on top of that like very foundational sensory uh you know memory
2: i think there's there's lots of people around who 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 probably have that, that similar kind of you know um experience as you did, and that's not a smell they're exposed to too often mm-hmm. um so you know yours could go by uh, mm-hmm. where you think you know. You're, you're fine, and then, you know, <laughs> go spend a weekend at the beach, and there's, right. there's it's the right there. combination of temperature and the wind blowing and, and whatnot, and that's, you know, um, and it might not be real dramatic, but you just can't figure out why you're right. kind of off today, mm-hmm. you know. Do you think the,
0: um, these anniversaries that we do are helpful, the, like really saying, okay, it was one year ago today, it was five years ago today, and you know now we're coming, well, this was 10 years ago. Let's all get together, let's, let's think about Katrina, let's share our memories, let's talk about it.
2: Do you think that's helpful? I, I think it it's, it's, my guess is that, that for most people, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's still experiencing you know, PTSD from it, I'm not sure if it is or not. Because um, you know, right after the, the storm. There were a lot of people around who who um, kind of naively think, "Well, the more you talk about it, the better," and and you know, for for lots of people, that's probably true, um, but that's not necessarily true, and it, you know, it depends how the conversation goes, and mm-hmm. and and you know, or if 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 it's pulling up a lot of bad memories and, and re-experiencing the, the trauma and. Um, without any kind of constructive way to deal with it, it can become mm-hmm. problematic over and over. It does seem to me that 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 I've seen over over the years the the, the, the anniversaries have have changed tone,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and a lot of the coverage that I've seen this year seems to be very constructive and talking about the um, what's been done since then or, or, or you know even going back to um, there was the report this morning I heard on NPR and they were talking about the superdome and the Convention Center and mm-hmm. and really just pointing out that, that yeah, some of these these stories you heard they just weren't real. They, they, they weren't oh, yeah. really what's going on and I think that that's important because um, you know, our, the way our, our brains work is we forget those things even though we, you know we might have known them, few weeks later or at some point along the way um, that 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 initial memory is, is of hearing about those events um, we need to remember but on the other hand you know I think I remember watching you know, the coverage in my house with my a bunch of people in my home who, who had evacuated there and you know, they're showing these, uh, helicopters flying over in the flooded water, you know, I'm just turning around like, I, I can't imagine you ever living there again. Anyone that, ever living that, there that, again.
0: That is what amazes yeah. me. Um, we, if we're talking about PTSD, the sort of people who are going to, like, truly feel that are people who were on those roofs, mm-hmm. people who um, barely survived, and I, I know some people like that, some people who live here. and. You know, they just did get to a place where they weren't swept away, or they they came. I, I have some, I have some people who came down here and got in boats and, you know, went around looking for family members and stuff like those people truly experienced it. And I'm amazed at the number of those people who are still here, and I can't imagine what it must be like to, for any of these reminders to, to sweep those memories back into the front of their brain. It must be unbelievable. I think. I mean. It's it's weird too because you know if you're a, a veteran or you've experienced something like an earthquake or or uh, maybe a, a ship sinking or any any amazing huge life threatening event like uh, the chances of like that kind of situation returning in your normal day to day civilian life are probably pretty slim. But if you experienced um, maybe earthquake wasn't a good example, but like if you experienced a natural disaster, I would assume that like yeah, they're going to be several times for the rest of your life. You're going to have to really take hold of yourself because you kind of experience very similar conditions. Where I'm from, it was Camille and then Katrina. And I mean, the people that lived through Camille were like, oh, here it is. Like, I knew they sort of had an attitude like, it was good while it lasted, but here we are again. Uh, yeah,
2: I think that was their models around. Um, and there's big enough gaps between them usually um, that that it, that it that there's, there's time for complacency and <laughs>
0: right um, yeah um so uh, to be a, to sort of end on a helpful note like what if you are experiencing things that are similar to PS, PTSD or maybe mild P T S D or you're experiencing something severe and strong. Like what would you recommend? Like what what sort of help should people? I mean, there is help, I'm assuming, and they should seek it out. What how, how what would you recommend for people to do?
2: Yeah, I th- I think that um you know you, you you should begin by by talking with someone who can point you in helpful directions. So your family physician would be a good player, person to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, psych- psychologists and psychiatrists have uh, resources that can be helpful. Um, it seems that. That there there are medications that can that can treat the anxiety but they don't necessarily dis, disengage that anxiety from those triggers without um, extra kind of therapy and, and, and experiences and it seems that the in addition to the kind of the exposure part that I was talking about before the other parts that, that seems to be have a whole promise for being effective at least none of these things have really good evidence that they work for everybody mm-hmm. um, is it, just, kind of mentally reframing and, and, and restructuring and, and uh, making sense of, of, of your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes I think for people that just uh, they realize that, that you did things at the time that made sense to you, that there they they were the right things for you to do, um, even though they might not have had the kinds of outcomes that you wanted at the time, um, You were making decisions, and, and you were acting with what information you had, and, and that's what that's the best you could do at the time.
0: It seems to me this is also a a phenomenon that that really can be treated through therapy. It can, it can be treated through um, seeking a mental health professional. Whereas I know a lot of things people, especially if you're dealing with like sort of this nebulous anxiety, or right. or or you have depression there's these are things that maybe there's a medical there's a pharmaceutical route to go right A pharmacological route to go mm-hmm. and it was, i know that i would imagine that a ptsd would feel like like well, i can't medicate this away so i would hope people would understand that there is a there is a therapeutic route that is helpful because it's about learning it's about you know cognitive processes that can be altered it's not just talking about it we're talking about mechanically physically altering the brain through therapy,
2: correct? Right. It's yeah. So so re, reframing your your experiences is, is part, um, learning to think about it in a different way. But there's also cognitive skills for dealing dealing with those triggers, um, dealing with those events. So um, you know, find really you are talking about ways of, of changing your your body's reaction to mm-hmm. those environments and. Ironically enough, you know, there's evidence that we can do that by the way we think about things, mm-hmm. can can change how how we respond to them.
0: And I'm hoping that uh, as virtual reality gets more uh, advanced, I mean we're about to get into a about the first decade of good, home, easy, cheap virtual reality that there can be um, therapeutic avenues opened up by that, where you could almost like inoculating somebody, you could give somebody a very weak version of the experience that their body is reacting to and then slowly acclimate them, maybe.
2: Yeah, I think that that would be really ideal because you could, you know, just by thinking about, you know, varying the the realism mm-hmm. of the experience, and so you start with something that's that's maybe you know, kind of cartoonish, and, and you gradually make it more and more real. That's that's a way to, to ramp up that that exposure in a way that we don't normally have, you know. The, the access to it mm-hmm. um, and so that would that would be a that's kind of, you know, I think that would be the ideal manifestation of some kind of exposure therapy where you could you could layer in the details mm-hmm. gradually if you are not the person
0: experiencing these things but you're the loved one of someone like this or the friend of someone like this and you um, know they need help what's what is the what's the best way to deal with a person like that. How? How? What's the best way to encourage or help or? I mean, what is? How do you become? How? You, what is the best way to be supportive of a person who
2: is experiencing these sort of um, terrible psychological effects? Well, I think. I think part part of it to to not be overly supportive in the sense of of just enabling them to live that way. Um, I think that that there are. There are avenues for for improving their lives and improving um, their ability to, to deal with those symptoms, and so kind of encouraging them to to move into those those directions. Um, so part you're, it's it's a it's a mental illness, and, and so part you're dealing with all of the, the stigma about that, and, and just you know, saying you know it's it's not a weakness there's very strong, powerful people that that experience these um, these kinds of phenomenon and, and um, symptoms and yeah. the part is that the one of the challenges I think that 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 family members or other loved ones face is 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 the kind of feeling that well, I'm over it and you should be too now um and people you know work on in and, and different lines and in different time frames and, and sometimes um, and I wonder whether I'm over it, you should be now I means maybe I'm not really over it, but I want to be and I want to be past it and so you keep reminding me. Uh, hmm. And so kind of if a person's experiencing PTSD, the symptoms and then has to hide them from other people. Um, it just makes them that much more debilitating. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's so important to. I mean, it's it's a weird thing that we do. It's a cultural thing, and especially in the South, it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a problem with your liver or your pancreas or your heart or your lungs or your bones, you know, you know get that checked out by a doctor, get that fixed. <laughs> and if you have a mental Problem or a disorder or something—it seems like you know—it seems like that's not just because it's your brain that's involved. It does it shouldn't be any different than if it was your stomach. You know, if you have an ulcer, you get that fixed. You get the pills for it. You have right. a brain problem. You, or you, see, you should seek a professional. But especially in the South, which is one of the worst things about the Katrina experience, is that people in the South don't see therapists—not not nearly as often as people on the coasts do. and The East and West coasts and. Um, there's, you're okay or you're crazy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and right. you know, PTSD, like, well, yeah, he went crazy. Like, you know, and that's, that's something that we have to really... He's got overcome. a case of nerves. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, uh, and I hope that, um, I hope that this university and the people in this community continue to uh, push through and rebuild. It's,
2: it's amazing that the rebuilding continues. Yeah, I mean, it really is. We. Occasionally, just stop to think about it and relax from that. We still don't have this, we still don't have this. To be like, actually, I never thought this area would ever come back and I the same people thing. there.
0: I was <laughs> like, no, it's amazing how much has come back. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. I am a big fan of The Great Courses, and I really, really, really enjoyed their lecture series, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking, taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, professor of neurology at Yale. He also is the host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He was a guest on the show. He talked about conspiracy theories. We were on a panel together at DragonCon talking about conspiracy theories. All around fantastic person, and you will learn from him all about metacognition, how our brains work to process information and misinformation and how all of that shapes our thought processes. With powerful practical tools, you can learn to become a stronger critical thinker in both your personal and your professional life. The Great Courses is celebrating 25 years, 500 courses on a variety of subjects, like science, history, and more. And when you get a course, it's not just one video. It is an entire series of videos. It's basically an entire college course in this topic taught by a really famous, cool, awesome person. Watch or listen to The Great Courses with online downloads, streaming apps, DVDs, CDs, whatever works best for you. And I want you to check it out. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for my listeners, order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the one that I watched, Your Deceptive Mind at 80% off the original price. But it's only available for a limited time, and it really does go away if you don't go get it. So to order Your Deceptive Mind with my special offer from The Great Courses, go to thegreatcourses.com smart. Get smarter! All you have to do is go to thegreatcourses.com smart. And now we return to our program. In each episode, before I eat a cookie, I read a bit of self-delusion news or talk about a recent study. In this episode, we are talking about an article that appears in a story at the website for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's written by David Schultz. If you want to um, read this yourself, just head over to news.sciencemag. Dot .org and the headline is internet search engines may be influencing elections. So the article explains that there's new re- research by David Epstein, a psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research in Vista, California, and he has found that search engines like Google and Bing can have a strong impact on how people vote in elections even for offices like prime minister and president. So Epstein's team They built a fake search engine called Caboodle. And they had subjects from San Diego use that search engine to learn about two candidates for prime minister in Australia. Now, these people didn't actually know anything about that election or those candidates. And so the subjects were tasked with using the search engine as if they were truly attempting to determine who they would vote for if they were planning on voting in that election. And the scientists manipulated that search engine so that it would show one candidate more than the other and higher up. And they found that when you stack the results so that one candidate appears in the top few results more than the other, the undecided voters chose that candidate much more often than subjects shown an equal mix of both candidates. Now, the researchers later repeated this experiment in real time, in the real world, in a real election in India, and they found that the results weren't as pronounced in the real world. but the stacking did give the higher up candidate an advantage. The favored candidates numbers were enhanced by 12% among undecided voters in the real world. In the other experiment, they were, they were enhanced almost by 50%. But Epstein says even 12% is insane. It's a huge margin because many elections are won by a margin of only 1%. So according to the scientists and the researchers and all the people involved, Modern search engines will algorithmically favor one candidate over the other at certain points during the election. They just always do, depending on what's happening in the news and your search history and all this, all these other things can play in. That search engine is going to show you one candidate more than the other at certain periods of time during the election cycle. And that favoring can and will influence election results, especially among the undecided. And that is something that they say must be addressed by the companies that provide those services. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, Who cares about other things? On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. If I bake and eat and cook and enjoy the cookie that you sent in, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. So <laughs> this episode's cookie comes from Brian Brushwood, who was the guest on the episode just before this one. Brian is the magician and, uh, you know, reality-bending social engineering uh, um, super freak who <laughs> is, uh tours the country, blowing people's minds, teaching them about uh, skepticality and teaching them about science and doing magic and he sent me this cookie recipe right after we uh, finished the show. And he says, I finally thought of a cookie recipe for you. Have you ever tried these lemon angels? And then he sent, he gave me the whole recipe and it's uh, an egg and buttermilk and baking soda and vanilla and lemon juice and sugar and all purpose flour and butter. And the directions are to take a small bowl and put the egg in there and beat it up until it's foamy and then add the buttermilk, vanilla and the blend and then add the baking soda one teaspoonful at a time, sprinkling it in and then beating it until the mixture is smooth. And then there's a bunch of other ingredients and instructions that you will never get to because this was a practical joke that I totally fell for. In fact, you know, Mandy makes these cookies. My wife, Mandy makes these cookies and she said, I think I screwed this up. I think I ruined these cookies it was like a weird experiment gone wrong because when you add the baking soda, it foams up like a volcano experiment in school and goes all over the place. And you feel like, what is the hell is happening? What's wrong with me? Am I really, uh, did I get this? Did I, did I not read this correctly? And so Brian Brushwood pranked me and, uh, <laughs> there's no cookie. There's no cookie. And actually they did, they did, uh, over time, like, um, this weird thing settled down into this kind of a sponge cake. So I am, I am going to taste the sponge cake that was left over. Although I think that this is not good for me and could make me sick. Uh, but uh, let me tell you where this came from. It's a Penn and Teller trick because we were talking about Penn and Teller and magic and the, and that kind of stuff. I didn't look at this. I didn't look this up. I trusted him. But uh, after it messed up, I went online to see like, is did he get the like ingredients or the um, the measurements wrong or something. And I looked, I found all over the place that no, it's, it's a total, it's a total trick. And if you go, uh, if you go over all over the internet, you'll find in all sorts of places where people have ingredients and, um, and recipes for like the food network and, and other places like that where people share recipes, it's everywhere. This has been seeded all over the internet, (laughs) this fake recipe that ruins the kitchen and no one gives it away. Sometimes in the comment section people will give it away, which is too too bad. But um <laughs> it's in fact on the food network they 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 put this huge warning at the top that says don't do this. So, um I am going to taste it though, Brian, because you're such an asshole for doing this that I'm actually going to taste it. It feels like a it feels like a twinkie uh without anything in it. So, here's a very tiny taste. That's disgusting. <laughs> Don't do this. Uh, yeah, it just tastes like a um, lemony shoe. So not not, not recommended. But if you want this recipe, I will put it on the website in the show notes for this episode. Um, and I will explain. Uh, this is something you can pass around and give to someone if you want to ruin their afternoon. Um, thank you, Brian Brushwood, for completely getting me with an old... But I was totally unaware of it. Practical joke called the uh, sometimes called the Swedish lemon angel, an old pen and teller trick that comes from their book. I think how to play with your food. Thank you, Brian, and uh, I will figure out a way to get you back. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Find more great podcasts just like this one over at boingboing.net. You can also get the show notes for this episode at youarenotsosmart.com. Find all the previous episodes at SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. You can learn more about both of my books. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie... I will send you a signed copy. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Plus. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds have been by Mogwai and banjo Apocalypse, and sometimes, Drew Garaway. If you are a uh, patron over at Patreon, this episode will have an extra I read a story all about my Katrina experiences. Check it out over at Patreon.